Welcome to the Man at Work podcast. This is season three, episode number seven. And of course, I am your host, Travis Streb. We have a theme with these last two episodes. I'm interviewing men that are part of my men's program that I have been part of for the last three or four years. Today, I've got the famous Dr. Robert Glover on the show. Uh, Robert is an internationally recognized authority on nice guy syndrome. If anyone has ever heard of or read the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, a proven plan for getting what you want in love, sex, and life, then you'll know Robert's work. He's also the author of Dating Essentials for Men, the only dating guide you will ever need, and is the author of several more upcoming books. He is an internationally renowned speaker, workshop leader, and just an incredible man on the planet. This episode is a little bit about No More Mr. Nice Guy. Robert's got some nice nuance based on the work he's done. We talk a bit about dating essentials, but really it's a discussion about the plight of the modern man. And whether you identify as a man uh, or not, I know you'll get a lot from this episode. There's a nice guy in just about every human being that I have come across, including me. All right, let's get going with Robert Glover. The spiritual community, in my opinion, could benefit from some reality at times. <laughs> like, this is yeah. what life is like when you're trying to fucking date women. It's not, <laughs> yeah, it's not all like that. It's not all sunshine and just just blast her with energy. It's like, no, you have but, to talk to her at some point. <laughs> open open your heart and blast her with love. Yeah. Oh, you know, hold space for her while she talks about every creepy ex she's ever had. That's that's know? right. That's yeah, right, man. Yeah. You know, I, I was a minister for eight years. I've got two degrees in religion. So I, I was a fundamental, I, I wasn't fundamentalist, but I preached. I grew up and preached in a fundamentalist church. And um, and there used to be a saying about some people that they were so heavenly minded that they were no earthly good. Um, you know, which means, and basically they're so fucking spiritual that, you know, that, that, that you know, they're, they're not worth anything here on this planet. Um, so yeah, there's there's value in in being on a spiritual journey and still being rooted and grounded to what's real here in this human experience. So yeah, man. Well, it's um it's good. Well, I, I'm I'm really happy to have you on the on the show. Finally, you know, I, I, this I'm recording as you know this recording okay. season three right now, and I decided this year I'm just gonna do, I'm gonna batch record it. So I've re- been recording all my episodes this month and last. And, um, it's been, it's been great to have focus. So it's like, I'm not just kind of dabbling in podcasting. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm going to do my episodes and I really wanted to curate a good list. And I know you've done a lot, you've been on a lot of shows. So I was trying to think through, I'm like, well, what are the things that, what are some of the angles I want to cover? And we know we'll, we'll get to it a bit today, but, um, you know, I think the big, the big thing that I want that I'm hoping we can jump in on is like, it's been almost well, it's been what 17, almost 18 years since you wrote No More Mr. Nice Guy. Well, since and... it got published, it's probably been over 20 years since I finished writing it. <laughs> well, you know, but it's it's still it's still a book I recommend to clients all the time. I, I've seen I've you know I've been through the No More Mr. Nice Guy process myself. I've seen all this most of the stuff that shows up in me. I'm sure there's mm-hmm. lots more. And I see it all the time in other people. And um uh, you know, even though it's, you know, it's almost 20 years old, it, it is a lot of timeless wisdom, but I'm wondering if just for my listeners, cause maybe a lot of them haven't heard of you, we can just jump back to like, what's the story behind mm-hmm. no more Mr. Nice guy. That feels like a nice place to start and we can go from there. Sure. You know, uh, um, okay. Yeah. Go anywhere you want to go. I always just tell people anywhere you want to go, I'll follow. Uh, and you know, I, I like it when people kind of come up with, you know, an interesting twist or something, because as you might imagine, I hear a lot of the same questions, but that's okay. I try to keep that fresh too. So anywhere you want to go, I'll follow anything you want to talk about. Nothing's off limits. I'll, I'll go, I'll go down any rabbit hole you want to go down. Um, and, and who's, who's our audience and, and how long do you see this go? I don't have a hard stop, but about how long do you usually go and who are we I, talking to? So 
the audience here is interesting. It's, it's mostly corporate folks. So I, my, my, my coaching and consulting work is inside organizations. Um, so most, that's where most of my listeners come from. Uh, I've got, you know, it's evenly split between men and women, okay. which is interesting. Um, and my guests have roughly been evenly split between men and women. So what, what these people, you know, these people are, they're just people though. Right. So relational yeah. stuff is totally in, in, you know, in for them. We don't talk about it all the time, but it, most of their, they're dealing, they're dealing with their own, their, their own issues as it shows up in the workplace, which are it's the same things that are going to show up in their relationships, but you know, Usually, it's just a yeah. different entry point for me. So and then I, I record, I record for, for an hour. I booked just for an hour 15. Okay. If we finish early, uh, I'm not, I don't, I don't extend time and, and leave dead space. So we'll just see where right. we end up, but we, we, we won't, I promise you. Uh, my, <laughs> my interviews always seem to go much longer than what the host says they typically do. Uh, so, all right, anyway, well, so we'll, I got, we'll just go with it. Yeah, we'll go with it. And um, if you need to take a break, do anything, whatever. If anything happens, you want to re-say something. I have a great producer, Jack. He's in- incredible. He will, he'll take care of us on the back end. So I've, I've never had to do that. So you know. <laughs> good, good. Well, I, I won't, I won't give you a Joe Rogan marathon and, and uh, force you to, to break the limits of your bladder. So, so yeah, why don't, why don't we start with the story behind no more Mr. Nice Guy, just for anyone who hasn't heard of Dr. Robert Glover, which, you know, at this point, I hope you have. Okay, well, story behind No More Mr. Nice Guy is that I am a recovering nice guy. Uh, at just the perfect time we got ambulances going. It's perfect, on. man. I, I like just, it. Yeah, it's, just, <laughs> you know, it's real. It's life. So, um, so I'm a recovering nice guy. And uh, if you had asked me, if you had met me 30 something years ago, I would have been happy to tell you I'm a nice guy. And, and I was proud of that. And I couldn't understand why everybody else didn't have the same kind of life paradigm that I did, you know, okay, be generous, treat people well, you know, don't be a jerk, you know, avoid conflict, uh, don't upset anybody. And um, I I was living my life that way for a good 30 something years and got into my second marriage. And then it wasn't working so well. And uh, my my then wife, second wife, about two years into the marriage said, I can't take any more of, of your passive aggressiveness. Now, I already had a PhD in marriage and family therapy, and I really didn't know what passive aggressiveness was other than she was telling me I was wrong. I was bad. I was doing something wrong. I took pride in doing things right. And um, she said, everybody thinks you're such a nice guy, but you can be so mean to me. You can be so hurtful. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, you're the problem in this relationship. You're angry all the time. You never want to have sex anymore. You're moody. You're up and down. You overreact to everything. It's never good enough. Uh, you know, no matter what I try to do, you know, I'm thinking, hey, I'm doing everything right. You're the one that, you know, is the problem. And she said, I just can't take your passive aggressiveness. She said, so you got to go get help. And I'm not going to stick around if you don't go get help. Well, I, I wanted to stick around, even though I was really unhappy just two years into the marriage. Um, but I loved her and uh, she had a lot of great qualities. And I always just thought, man, if, you know, maybe we should get all her best qualities to show up more and her worst qualities to show up less. Um, <laughs> just for frame of reference as 30 years as a marriage and family therapist and on my third marriage. Uh, usually what happens long-term is their worst qualities get bigger and their best qualities get smaller. Now, not just women, that's just people in a relationship. So anyway, uh, I, I went seeking help mainly to figure out why me being a nice guy didn't make her happier, didn't make mm. her appreciate me. Now, luckily, I landed into some really good places. The so first one was a 12-step group for sex addicts because she says, you're a sex addict. I kept thinking, I'm not having enough sex to be a sex addict. So I went to this 12-step group for sex addicts, quickly found out I wasn't a sex addict, but it was such a great place to be because for the first time in my life, I had a safe place to just open up and talk about me, to talk about uh, feelings, thoughts, dark places, mistakes, fear, shame. Um, I grew up in a very fundamental Christian church. I have two degrees in religion. You kind of grew up, you know, hide all that stuff. Keep, keep it, you know, even though we were taught God can see it all. No, keep it hidden. <laughs> Don't let anybody else see it. So, I mean, this, this is, it was all men in this group. 
and and again, they're all acting out sex addicts. So it was really a good place to to really go deep and be vulnerable. And that's the first time in my life I ever really experienced revealing me and being vulnerable. And this group met like at six a.m. You know, once a week. I was excited to get up and go to that you know that group at six a.m. just because it felt so good to just reveal me and be accepted and not, not you, know, the, you know you tell I can tell my darkest stuff and the people are going to go thanks for sharing Robert you know that, that's it nobody goes oh what kind of person are you at the same time I, I started working with a therapist who um, was really good I still remember our first session together she did a little demonstration of boundaries and got a little string out on the ground and did a little physical interaction with me around boundaries now again um I was in my 30s in my second marriage and already had a PhD in marriage and family therapy. I'd never heard of boundaries. I had no clue what boundaries were. And I don't know if this therapist, if she just began every session, every first session with new clients with the boundary lesson, or if she could just see, I needed instructions on boundaries because I had none. I, I, I didn't know I could say no, stop. Uh, I'm going to get off the phone now. If you do that again, we're done. I didn't know I could actually do things like that. I thought you just tolerate stuff and talk people down, talk them through, get them over it, try to get everything back to good as quickly as possible. Now, that's classic nice guy behavior. And that's what, what I did. I, I learned to do that with my dad, who was angry and critical and demeaning. And so these, this was the toolkit that I carried into adulthood is, you know, trying to do everything right, trying to manage people and situations to keep life calm, trying to get appreciation and love and value for being a good guy. And um, luckily, as I said, I fell, I fell into some good places. And uh, then at, not long after that, I got into a men's group, mainly working around sexual shame that I was in for four or five years. That was really a powerful experience. Then what I started seeing was guys coming to me uh, for therapy. Uh, I, I had a private practice coming as individuals or often with a girlfriend or wife. And they were saying the same stuff I'd been saying, you know, I'm a good guy. I treat her well. I treat her better than her ex. I'm raising her kids. I try to give her everything she wants. It's never good enough. She's never happy. She never wants to have sex anymore. I'm thinking, damn, I'm not the only person. And I could, I could finish her sentences for them. So about 25, five or so years ago, I started my first No More Mr. Nice Guy men's group. And we met every other Wednesday. And, um, and I just started writing and giving guys, I guess, chapters. Now we'd probably call them blog articles, just giving them, you know, a few pages of what I was learning about nice guy syndrome. You know, my theories about where it came from, uh, the belief systems we internalize, why that's ineffective, what is more effective, how to change our beliefs, how to change our behaviors. And I just kept writing and writing. And over a period of time, period of a few years, uh, these guys and often their wives and girlfriends kept saying, Robert, you need to write a book. You need to go on Oprah. This could be a bestseller. There's lots of people that need this. So I kept writing and um, took six, seven years to write it and about three years to finally get it published. And it came out in two, early 2003. So it's been out about uh, 17, eight, going on 18 years. And um, the book's still doing well. Uh, royalty checks keep getting bigger every year. So um, it's, it seems to really be helping to fuel a worldwide men's movement that, um, that's not really just about how not to be a nice guy. That's really about how to, how to be an integrated, authentic person and uh, how, to have, how to have good relationships, how to, how to live up to your potential work and career, and uh, how to get your needs met in healthy ways, how to be honest, how to be boundaried. So uh, it covers a lot of stuff. Yeah, man. I mean, it's, it's an, for those that are listening that haven't read it, um, it's, it's an, an incredible book. And there's even if you're not a nice guy, chances are there's some pieces in there that, <laughs> that are going to stick. Um, you know, one of the things that, as I went through it when I was first learning about it and I, and I've seen this through, through my work as well. It's like this, the distinction between, you know, or the, the, maybe the area between being a total ass versus being a classic nice guy. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that to help somebody make a better distinction for themselves about, you know, is, is there a line or is, is no more Mr. Nice guy just about becoming a jerk well, that's, that's a good question. And that's uh, um, a question that a lot of people initially have, or even a misperception that people have. And um, 
you know, the, the, the book title is, uh, it, it's meant to grab your attention in a little bit, but it's also kind of, uh, it's somewhat paradoxical, but also kind of creates a little cognitive dissonance. We'll go, we've probably all said at one time or another, no more Mr. Nice Guy. I'm not taking this anymore, blah, 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 blah. Um, but as you pick up a book, obviously written for men and go, why would somebody write a book teaching men to be not nice? There's already enough not nice men out there. And, um, and so, of course, the book is not how do you become a jerk? And, and, and often we men are kind of black and white. It's, it's either A or B. It's what, black or white. It's this or that. And, um, and guys will often come to me and say, all right, uh, Robert, I, I, I understand being a nice guy isn't working so well for me, but I don't want to become an asshole either. And they'll say, you know, can, can you kind of help me find that, that healthy, happy medium between the two? And I'll go, it does not exist. I said, I don't know where the tipping point is, where the healthy tipping point is between two toxic extremes. There isn't more, I'll just become a little bit less nice or I'll become a little bit more jerk. And so what what I teach, and that's why I use the term integrated male in the book, um, is it's not about, you know, becoming less of this or more of that. It's really about becoming just more of our authentic self, being who we are you know, our needs, our wants, our dark sides, our impulses, you know, our good or bad, integrating all of that together and engaging in life as as what you see is what you get kind of guy. So the problem with trying to just be like less nicer, more jerk, but not jerk, is that I actually think both the nice guy and the asshole jerk are both in constant fight, flight, freeze mechanism. They're, they're in survival mode. They're constantly being triggered by their adrenaline, their cortisol that's wired into our systems to help us fight tigers or you know run from marauding herds or whatever. So what happens is just, I think the nice guy's more typically in the flight freeze mode of survival, of managing anxiety. The asshole jerks more in the fight mode. They're, they're more just aggressive about, but both of them are just trying to manage anxiety. So, you know, and nice guys often will go over to this other extreme and we'll have something that my ex-wife used to call a victim puke to where we are not very nice. We can be total assholes, but then that usually scares the bejeebers out of us. when We bounce back over here again. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, I'll make it up to you. I won't be bad, blah, 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 blah. So it really is not about going from one extreme to the other, but it's about rising above in a more conscious state, uh, a more conscious, integrated, authentic, honest, self-soothing, differentiated, deciding what I want in life and then living that. It's a complete different state to be. Yeah, I, I love the, that, uh, that kind of visual you've created here. The way, I, the way I look at it and the way I talk about it is like in, in terms of polarity. So there's the you know, on the, un, on the unconscious side is like the Mr. Nice guy and the asshole at, at, you know, these two extremes, Yeah, you go, you go above into the conscious and you've got like ultimate deep compassion and empathy on the one side, and then this fierceness and ruthlessness on the other right. so that you can access both. And that the ironic, you know, paradoxically, it's actually pushing those, both those edges that creates more bliss in life as opposed to trying to find the middle which is meek and uninteresting at the best that's i love how you put that yeah trying to find that middle ground uh, it doesn't exist and yeah you just you're just going really deeper into an anxiety state of how do i manage this but yeah i love that when you're out there pushing those those edges and and i'm smiling as you talk because uh you and i have you know have both done practices you know, together even um, to where, you know, you're looking in another person's eye and, 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 you know, they're saying, you know, bring more lover then bring more killer, you know, bring more fierceness, bring more compassion. And, you know, just with energetically, you're embracing both of those, what we might consider extreme or, or pull, you know, polar opposites, but it's when we truly can be in either one of those places is needed. Sometimes what's needed is extreme compassion and open heartedness. Other times what's needed is a get in somebody's face and knock the lights out if, if needed. You know, sometimes we, we've got to stand up for, 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 for something that we believe in. And if we can consciously move easily between either of those polarities, and there's lots of, we can put a lot of things in those, those polar uh, places, 
that's becoming integrated is that ability to 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 choose which is most needed in any given situation and do that very consciously towards a response to a situation rather than just a fight flight freeze reaction to having our anxiety triggered yeah man i i i, <laughs> I like that too yeah the, the deep eye contact moving energy you know if anybody's curious about that robert and i share a teacher in in john wineland but um that you know, part of part of what it sounds like you're working on to help people, to help men kind of rise above, or to, is is awareness training, and it's 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 a it's a tough sell because when you tell like yeah, certainly when I, I hear it all the time when you tell someone that what we're working on is awareness they're like oh is that just meditation it's like well it's not it's not it's like you got to become aware of your own stuff so without giving too much away you know I know it's your business but like how do you how do you start to create awareness for, for men that are, you know, uh, horribly unaware? Well, and that's a good question. And you talk about, you know, um, well, what's the hook? What's the sexy hook that we could actually pull people <laughs> yeah. in? Because like, for example, I, I teach an online class called the Ruminating Brain. Mm. Now, it, I could approach this class and I, you know, I hope to turn it into a book at some time in the near future. I could approach it like, how to be more mindful and people will go, uh, okay. Um, but if I approach it with, does your brain drive you fucking crazy? Is it always digging up shit from the past and, ha you know, hashing, you know, beating you with it? Is it always going into the future and having to, you're visualizing everything that would possibly go wrong if you take action? Is it constantly comparing yourself and measuring yourself by other people and you always come up short? And if so, I've got something for you. And people raise their hand, go, that's me. And the nice guy, you know, but, and then I can talk to them about mindfulness and present moment awareness, and I can bring in cognitive behavioral therapy techniques to help them. But if I just pitch the book as a mindfulness book or class or cognitive behavioral therapy class, people go, oh, there's a lot of books like that out there. But you, so when, when it hooks in the nice guy, the no more Mr. Nice guy is the same way. You know, if I, if, if I wanted to pitch this, how to become an aware integrated male, um, you know, three people would buy the book. Uh, but if, if, if it's pitched with, uh, you know, are you struggling to find love? Are you struggling to get laid? Do, do you fail to live up to your potential? Um, are, are, you know, are you anxious? Are, are, are things just not, are you, do you want to be appreciated? And that just, now people go, yeah, I, I relate to that. Yeah. I'm not living up to my potential. I, I keep, I watch people pass me by all the time. I watch guys that aren't, you know, that are less than me, get good looking women. And I can't, I, I can't get one. Then you can relate to, okay. Um, and, and that, that's, that's where I confuse a lot of people. Cause I've actually, I've written a book on dating as well. And most people get confused because they think, well, it's pickup, it's techniques, it's, you know, it's how to just go run these rote routines and make this thing happen. But it's not. It's about consciousness, how to be more aware, more present, more self-soothing, more, as I use the word, differentiated, meaning being able to ask yourself, what do you want? What's important to you? And then follow through on that. Living life in your terms, being comfortable in your own skin. Those are all just a bunch of different ways of saying conscious and aware. And, um, and now I can teach people how to be more conscious and aware because we're starting out with a problem where they're un they're unhappy. They're not getting what they want in life. So let's, let's start with the problems. Let's start with the struggles. And that's what I tell people. Everything I teach, everything I've written about, 90% of it comes out of things I've struggled with. Or, you know, almost all of it have been my own personal struggles. And I'll often tell people, no more Mr. Nice Guy is not a chronicle of my successes. It's a record of my fuck-ups. It's everything I bumbled my way through and, and did it total back asswards and had to find out why it didn't work and what might work better. So I think if you could start with people where they're struggling and then, you know, they're in pain and, and they're wanting something more and they're open. And now you can have them stand in front of each other and look into each other's left eye <laughs> for 30 minutes and give each other the instruction, more lover, more killer. Then, then, then people will stand there and they'll go, why am I standing here looking into this guy's eye for 30 minutes? But, but then it starts to make sense. And then when you feel different after doing whatever processes you've done, when it starts to feel different and you mm. notice you're happier and you notice you're more productive and you notice it you're actually responding rather than reacting to things that used to set you off. Um, then you really start seeing what the difference is. Yeah. I mean, and well, 
you've come across so many men that you, I mean, you must, you must see all kinds of differences. And um, one of the things that, that, that comes up for me as you're, as you're talking is I'm, I, I look at this and I'm like, you know, part of your work is around relationship but a lot of that stuff shows up all over the place. I mean, certainly anything that shows up for me in relationship also shows up in, you know, in other friendships and how I work and, you know, even, even client relationships, you tend to mirror some of those, some of the uh, health and pathology of my own issues. Mm. So when it, when you've been working with men uh, around the stuff and you're no more Mr. Nice Guy programs and you've got, and you get so many other ones, the, what do you see showing up in the non-relational side? Like, I mean, in, in particular, how do you see this showing up for people that are in their professional careers, whether it's no more Mr. Nice Guy or just a general lack of awareness? Uh, yeah, all of the above. Um, you know, I, I don't know who said it, but there's a fairly famous phrase most of us have heard is how, how you do anything is how you do everything. And uh, there's a lot of truth to that. Maybe it's not universally true in every single context, but it, it tends to lean in the direction of truth. So if you tend to be passive and avoidant and caretaking in your intimate relationships, odds are you might be passive and avoidant and caretaking in the workplace or in your business, so, you know, if you're self-employed or entrepreneur or working for somebody else. So th there usually is overlap. Now, of course, my wheelhouse Historically, it's been relationship. Like I said, I got I got my doctorate in marriage and family therapy at 29 years old, and I I, I that's the route I took because I wanted to fix my family. So you know, I've always kind of been relationship oriented, and even though I've said I bumbled my way through every relationship I've ever had, uh, that's just kind of how it seems to work. I think for all of us, and so um, that that's always been you know my focus. But then no more Mr. Nice Guy really came out of my relational struggles when. When I wrote No More Mr. Nice Guy, I was married. I'd, I'd only been married as an adult up to that time. But what was interesting that is, is always rated in the top 10 of dating books on Amazon, which still be, bewilders me. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I can't get my dating book into the top 10 of dating books on Amazon. But No More Mr. Nice Guy, I, I, I never dated at all well in my life when I wrote that book. So, but, but here's just kind of a little to kind of just illustrate a little bit what you said. And then we, we can dive into what yeah, yeah, your yeah. stuff is that when I, when I did get divorced, really right about the time, no more Mr. Nice Guys came out. So back 2002, 2003, and I did have to learn how to go date. And so I had to learn a new skill set. I mean, I, it was still all relational, but it, it is all new skill set of how to get out and be assertive and walk through open doors and challenge self-limiting beliefs and take risks and be vulnerable and as I got good at dating and getting women and getting laid and getting into relationship and just having success at it, what I started noticing is that every other part of my life took off as well. Mm. More adventures and opportunity came my way because I got used to walking through open doors. Um, my businesses started to take off. My income uh, went up, started spending more time here in Mexico where I now have lived for close to 10 years, things, every part of my life. So how you do anything is how you do everything. So when I got good at something that's fundamental to human nature, i.e. relationship, now being good at relationship is not fundamental to human nature. Craving relationship is, okay? So when I got good at something that we're not naturally good at, that then got generalized and transferred to, to several other areas of my life, mm. both the skill sets and just how I just got up and walked the planet every day. Yeah. Saying goodbye to my wife. She's walking out to take my daughter to, to a school's function. So as I got good at one thing, I got better at a lot of things. Now, when, um, when No More Mr. Nice Guy was about to be published, it was being published jointly by Barnes & Noble, who at that time was just getting into book publishing. Now I'm not even sure if they're even still in the book selling business. <laughs> uh, last I heard, they were, they'd gone bankrupt. Um, so it was being joint published by Barnes & Noble and, and another uh, independent company. And Barnes & Noble at that time had something they called Barnes & Noble University, where authors would create classes, online classes, based on their books. And they, they, of course, used it to bring people in and sell books. 
And so they had me develop a course. They, they didn't want it just to be an, uh, a rehash of No More Mr. Nice Guy, but an application. And I decided at that time to, to focus on work and career because mm. I'd, I'd found that I, I was historically not living up to my potential and capabilities in, in work and career. I could see myself being capable of so much more. So I put together an eight week online course and it was one of their most popular courses till they quit doing it. I still teach it online to this day. And, um, and, and the basic concepts is, is the same nice guy traits that get in the way in relationship are going to get in the way in work and career, whether we're working, you know, for a company or working on our own. So it's, it's the same problems get up, whether it's the caretaking, the codependency, what, what I find for a lot of nice guys, both into entrepreneurs and in the workplace, is that we tend to get really good at what I call um, deceptive productivity. You know, we can stay busy. You know, we're always, you know, oh, I checked that off. I checked that off. But we stay busy in a way that distracts us from often the big piece that's sitting in front of us. That, that until, we, until we address that big piece and, you know, take the big cut at it, the big swing at it, nothing's ever going to significantly change in our lives. You know, and, that, and I called the class, nice guys don't finish last. They rot in middle management. And I say that nice guys are good at being good, but we're not great at being great. Why? Because we're caretaking, we're fixing, we're avoiding conflict, we're not risking, we're overanalyzing and getting caught in the analysis, paralysis of analysis about what might happen if I do this, if I, you know, if I present this to, to my boss, or if I launch out in my own business, what might, you know, we got this decision tree of everything that might go wrong, and we're looking at everything that might go wrong, and we go, oh, I better not do that, I better analyze it a while longer, and, and we find these other things that aren't so overwhelming to do, you know, oh, I'll clean my desk off for another time, you know, or, oh, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll just jump over to YouTube and Facebook for a few minutes when, when it's really this big piece in front of us that we just need to take the big swing at that will really, you know, there always seems to be that one thing that it's either going to hold us back or, or move us forward. And we tend to avoid that one thing. So not much happens. You know, I, I love, I read that sentence too on your site. I know it's in the um, you've made it famous now that they rot, nice guys rot in middle management. I see it. I see it so much. I have, you know, clients that are right on that cusp of moving into an executive role or even moving stepping over, stepping into a CEO, CEO role. And they can't figure out what the thing is that holds them back. And so they try to work on skill or it's, Oh, it must be. And they, and usually they get, they get shit feedback from people like, Oh, it's, it's they, they go get their MBA, right? Yeah. Just go get that's the MBA. The yeah. Go get the MBA. That's the only thing you're missing. And it's like, yeah. it's um, like, at least in my opinion, it's actually a, it's, it's a feeling that the, that, you know, the hiring person or the, you know, the current CEO or the board is they're like, I don't know if this, you know, if this guy, it, when push came to shove, I don't know if he really has the balls to do what we might need him to do. We can't have him in the seat. Or it's, it's like, he's drifted so far into the middle, like, does he have any sense of compassion? And is he ruthless? Or is, is he as meek as he's showing up? Um, but I like that. He's, he's drifted to the middle. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, but it's similar to dating, though. In, in my, it, I mean, at least I think it is. I haven't dated. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I ever dated except high school. I've been with my with my wife for a very long time. But um, lucky me. So the but the, the 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 parallel for me is it's like they see this possibility of like I could be the CEO or I could be the VP of whatever, and yet it's the it's the kind of the nice guy habits that prevent them from ever hitting it. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to throw out maybe a little paradox. Yeah, here, man. Because yeah. uh, I, I, and I hear you. And I got this hunch that is often when guys are saying, well, yeah, I want to be VP or, you know, I want to be CEO that, that that's where, that's where we get stuck. Okay. Um, I, I, I've got to feel, it's, it's like when people tell me, yeah, well, all right, you know, what, what, you know, what are your aspirations? And they'll list three or four aspirations. And, you know, and when they list, do a TED talk and I'll go, I don't want to hear your TED talk. I, I immediately have a gut. No, I don't want to hear your TED talk 
Because for people that list wanting to do a TED talk as one of their aspirations, to me, that's all fluff. I want the fluff. I want to be noticed. I want, to, I want the recognition that comes from doing a TED talk. You know, listen to, you know, Brene Brown, one of the most downloaded TED talks. Um, um, when, when she was asked to do it, she was scared shitless. She tried to find ways out of it. People don't go looking to do TED talks that really have something to say. It's the people who are saying something of value, they get recruited to come to a TED talk, right? So sometimes we get this thing back asswards is that, yeah, well, this, that's the position I wanna be, you know? And, and people will tell me, they'll say, Robert, you know, you're so lucky, you know, you, you, you get to live in, you know, this, you know beautiful country, you're, you're, you're married, you got a beautiful wife, you've written a book, you, you know, you, you get to do what you love, you're passionate, you're changing the world, you're so lucky. And, and, and I usually begin, I look and go, no luck involved. And, 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 and there wasn't, yeah, of course there was luck involved. It was luck that, you know, my ex-wife said, let's go to Mexico. I said, I don't want to go, but I went anyway and go, I love it. I'm coming back. I'm not married to her anymore, but I'm here now. I got, I found a Mexican wife. So, um, it, it, there was luck involved, but getting a PhD at 29, that's a bunch of fucking hard work launching a private practice. That's a bunch of fuck with no business background. That's a lot of hard work writing a book for seven years. That's a lot of hard work spending three years trying to find somebody that will take it on and publish it. That was a lot of hard work marketing that book for the last 17 to 18 years. I mean, talking to people like you several times a week, that's a lot of hard work making a decision that I was going to close down my business, move it all on the internet and move to a foreign country where I didn't speak the language. And now I'm married to a Mexican who doesn't speak English and I'm learning Spanish in my sixties. That's a lot of hard work. Right. And as I heard somebody say one time, it seems like the, the harder I work, the luckier I get. And, and, and the people say, well, Robert, you're so lucky because you can, you can do your passion and you can make a good living at it. And, and again, I'll say that. And, and, and they'll go, well, you know, you, you, you must have set out to, you know, like kind of the whole kind of David data thing, sit in the mud until your passion to your purpose comes to you. I've not spent one day sitting in the mud trying to wait for my purpose and passion to come to me. I just always leaned into whatever either intrigued me or where I struggled. And so here I am, people say, well, Robert, you have this passionate, exciting life. I've never woken up in the morning and thought, what's my passion? What's my purpose? I, I, I just get up and I do the stuff that, like I said, that either intrigues me or where I, I'm struggling. And somehow that's paid off in a way. And I'll do that till the day I die. That, that all right, go, go lean into what intrigues you and or go lean into the places you struggle and get good at. Like I said, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, would I be a dating coach? I'd say no way in hell. I don't know what I'm doing. But I went and leaned into something I wasn't good at. And I got good enough at it that people said, teach us. Right now, if I had aspired to be a dating coach, you know, just like, oh, I think it'd be cool to be a dating coach. I'm going to go figure out how to be a dating coach. I don't know that I'd be a decent dating coach, but because I struggled with dating and then got good at it and figured out what's the difference between struggling at it and being successful at it. And I'm naturally a teacher. That's what I do. And then people said, teach us. And then they start paying me money. I, I, I used to joke that I, uh, a few years back that I was a, a relationship, ex, uh, a, a marriage therapist who had been divorced twice and a dating coach that didn't have a girlfriend and people still keep paying me money. So, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't set out to be anything. I just got up every day and did the thing in front of me that seemed to be calling me the most. And, and so I, I think that may be what gets in the way of all these people that there's people saying, well, you know, you've got the potential to be, you know, a, a division leader, to, to be a, C, a CEO, to be vice president. And, um, and okay, I want to be, I want to be vice president. And I, I had a client several years ago, worked at Microsoft, bright guy. And, and he came to me and he said, Robert, I work all the time. His wife worked at Microsoft as well. I was used to be based up in Bellevue, Seattle, Washington area. And, and I, he said, I, I, I don't get any work done during the day. I take my laptop home every night, every weekend. And, and he said, I, I'm, I'm going crazy. And I said, show me your schedule. And he showed me his schedule on his phone. This guy had meetings all the friggin' day long. And I said, how do you get any work done when you have meetings all day? And he goes, that's corporate America. And, and I said, well, what's your aspiration at Microsoft? And he says, well, I, I, I think I want to be a VP. And I said, all right, let me ask you a question. 
I said, do VPs agree to every meeting request they get? He goes, no, of course not. I said, okay, your new mantra is VPs say no. Vice presidents say no. And he's given me permission to tell the story, so I can tell the rest of it. Is that, and so he actually then started saying no. Rather than aspiring to how do I get to be a VP, he started practicing the skill set of a VP of saying no to meetings that he just by default always said yes to. In less than two years of doing that, and he was a young guy, he was probably in his early 30s when I started working. In less than two years, he applied for and got the job as Steve Ballmer's personal speechwriter, traveled the world in Ballmer's private jet for two years, writing every one of his speeches. And by the time he left that position, you, you, they, they didn't allow anybody to do it longer than two years because Ballmer was such an asshole. He kind of worked them all out. Um, so, so after two years, he called me up and, and he said, I'm, I'm panicking. And, and he and I said, what's the panic? And he said, there, there's a, a meeting of all division heads and vice presidents this after, you know, tomorrow, I think it was. And he said, Balmer can't be there. He wants me to sit in his place. And I go, well, that's cool. I go, I see why you're kind of anxious. And I said, but you know everything that Balmer knows. You've written every one of his speeches for the last two years. He goes, yeah, but what if they ask me something and I don't know the answer? And I said, okay, here's your assignment. During this meeting, at least two times, I want you to say to this group of people, the, the brightest fucking people on the planet, at least twice say, I don't know, I'll find out, I'll get back to you. At least two times, I want you to do that. That's your goal for the meeting. Not to know all the answers, but twice say, I don't know, I'll get back to you. And um, he, he sent me a note the next day and then called me and we talked. And he said, that is like the best meeting I've ever had. I only had to say, I don't know, one time, everybody else afterwards complimented me on how the meeting went, how sharp it was, blah, 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 blah. Now, he wasn't trying to be like, again, a vice president. He wasn't trying to be Balmer. He was, he was doing what wise people do is say, I don't know. I'll find out. I'll get back to you. And by, by taking this pressure off that he's got to be perfect and say, I don't know. And he only had to do it one time. Nobody was upset. It went well. So it's these skill sets, I think, that, that move us up, not the aspiration of doing the TED Talk or being, you know, in, in the CEO seat. You know, that's, um, it's such a, it, it's so true. It's such a good story, too. I mean, I've, I've done some work at Microsoft myself um, in, the, in the coaching realm. So I'm sure we could swap some good stories offline. But uh, as you're telling that, what what it got me thinking about is one of the one of the you know a nice guy trait is is to uh feign knowledge like to fake it and so oh, instead yeah. of saying look i don't know i can get it to you it's like well I, uh in, in making excuses or or bluster or um so ironically that's that is you know it seems counterintuitive but that is a nice another nice guy behavior mm -hmm. um you know, it shows up all over the place. The funny, the, the Balmer thing is funny though, too, right? Because Steve Balmer is not, not there anymore. They brought in a new CEO in, in 2014, who people thought was Mr. Nice Guy. Yeah. He's not. Yeah. He's a great, he's an outstanding leader. He's written a wonderful book, Satya Nadella. He, but what he has is he has that polarity. I mean, the guy is ruthless. I mean, he, when he needed to cut, he cut, he knew where but also compassionate. Like the guy, you know, the guy's building his, his, the company on, on empathy, but there's still ruthlessness in him. Yeah. Like there's not a chance this guy doesn't have to make tough decisions and he makes him, he makes him very well, at least as far as their stock price is telling them. So it's a, yeah. And the, and the stock price of course had just been flat for years prior to that. It, it had. Flat. Yeah. Even though they were making billions of dollars yeah. on, off their legacy product, you know, stock was flat. Yeah. I use that story all the time around Nadella. I mean, I, I don't know much about Steve Ballmer. Um, you know, I heard a little about, about, about the asshole oh, rumor. There's he, always, there's always he owns, rumors. He owns a basketball team now. So yeah, he's, he's doing team. fine. But it's, a, it's an interesting one, too, because what, you know, you, you, when you look at what, what, it, what the caliber of being at that level, what it would take is, it, again, it's, it's not in the middle. It's not this kind of meek, understated, but, you know, but very strategic person. It's like the ability to be ruthlessly compassionate and, you know, be a ruthless killer, you know, in, in the, in the corporate world, as it were. So uh, I like that. I like where we've, where we've gone here. 
Um, one of the, so I, one of the things you, you've talked about that I, I see a lot with men is, is maybe not so much about the Mr. Nice Guy piece, but this idea of the ruminating brain. Mm-hmm. And we talked a little bit about it, like this, this kind of web of ideas and the decision trees and all that. And I, you know, I have, I have clients who, you know, I allow them for 20 minutes to kind of ruminate with me, but it feels like it's, um, it's so common amongst men, this kind of this thinking piece, what's, what's your take on it? And, um, this, this rumination, obviously it's a huge topic, but what's just at, at a, you know, gut feel level, what's your take on, on, um, how it, how it shows up and like why it's so uh, pervasive these days? Well, here's my take. Um, I actually think in a lot of people, and, and here's how I approach it, but I think there's also a, there's at least two, two good answers for it. But here, here's why I tell people, let's start with this. Let's start that you inherited a ruminating brain. Now, brains don't ruminate, um, but there are brain types that predispose us to certain patterns. They found that to be true with ADD, ADHD. They found it to, true to, to be true with addictions. They found it to be true with certain emotional sensitivities. This is, of course, true with things like autism and Asperger's. So there are brain types that predispose certain mind manifestations, right? The mind, we, you know, ask anybody to define the mind and you, you, you actually won't, you can't find anybody that can define it in a way. It's this thing that happens in this, you know, mass of jello in our head we call a brain. And um, so I think there are brain types that predispose people to have a ruminating brain. And I tell people, look at mom and dad and look at their parents. And do you have to look very far to find other people that did tend to ruminate, that tended to be hyper anxious, that tended to be depressed, that tended to be vulnerable to addictions, that tended to be compulsive, that tended to have relationship issues, um, that tended to, to react intensely? And they don't usually have to look very far. Usually, yeah, that's mom, or that was mom and dad, or that was my entire family, all stays in this ruminating place. And the second way I think that we can develop what, what I call is my, just my term ruminating brain is through trauma and to where it can be somewhat a, a, of a um, post-traumatic stress disorder response. Now, I think if you were born to parents who gave you a, a genetic ruminating brain, and I say, it's like our eye color, our hair color, our height, our stature, you know, we inherit those things from mom and dad. They, they, they you know, uh, if mom and dad didn't have it, we didn't get it. Right? So that's true of genetics. And so that, that's true of our brain types as well. Now, if you had a parent or two that gave you genetically a ruminating brain, and then they were parenting you with their ruminating brains, you probably got trauma added on top of the genetic inheritance because they probably weren't very good parents. And I'm not trying to be hurtful to any parents. I'm a parent, you're a parent, it's a tough job. But you know, if your brain is all the time shouting at you and bringing up negative things and looking at your child and thinking negative things about them, you're not gonna parent very well, okay? So then the children get, get traumatized, which they get, they get a ruminating brain on steroids. Now, in my experience is that it is a, I've already kind of gave a little preview of it. it the ruminating brain tends to manifest in three major categories, at least the way I see it and the way I work with it. One is the past. It's going to go back and rehash the past. Uh, past mistakes, missed opportunities, fuck-ups, things we did wrong, things if we just had a chance to do them again. And in that, it often creates a revisionist history. Well, if I had just had sex with that woman, you know, in college when she made herself available, here's how my life would just would look different now. And we create this life and we believe it's true, right? We create that our brain will create this high, you know, someone else told me is, is building these castles in the sky. Or if I just changed my major my junior year, my entire life would look different. Or if I just had, you know, accepted that job, or if I just hadn't quit that job right before, you know, that took off and they IPO and blah. And, and then we create this alternative life that we're sure we could be living if we'd not done those things. And because our brain believes, well, that that's all true. You know, if our brain thinks it, it must be true. Now, everybody believes everything their brain tells them. We all do. But the ruminating brain will create these We'll create fantasies and then act as if they could be true. If only we had done that thing different 25 years ago. Okay. Now, here's the thing. The I think in almost all cases, a ruminating brain create and I'm gonna I'm gonna talk, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna talk like it's, it's a conscious, almost human type thing. 
the ruminating brain always convinces us is looking for important information. And that might be part of its origins is, is, is to prepare us for to not make the same mistakes we used to make and to prepare us for what might lie ahead. But it tells us it's looking for important information. So if we've rehashed 8,000 times that missed sexual opportunity in college or rehashed 8,000 times that job we walked away from just before they went public and made everybody millionaires, right? If you've rehashed it 8,000 times and all you can see is the mistakes you made and how if you hadn't made that mistake, how great your life would be, you're going to feel like a total loser. You're going to feel really bad because you're going to believe all those ruminations. So as our brain fools us into thinking it's seeking important information by rehashing those events from 10 years ago, 25 years ago, all it's really doing is making us feel bad. It, you know, if there was any information to be gleaned to, to like help us respond better to future situations, we would have gleaned it on the 30th time. We didn't need to go back 8,000 times. Okay, so there's one thing we go into the past and we rehash all that stuff. And the more you rehash it, the more you feel like a loser. And the more you feel like a loser, the less like you are, likely you are to take any risk in life. Well, I'm a loser. Look at my past. I've, I've rehashed those two mistakes a thousand times. So like, it's almost like you made the same mistake 16,000 times because you've rehashed the same two mistakes 8,000 times each. So if I've made 16,000 mistakes, I must be a loser. I better not take any more chances because I'll probably make the same mistakes. The second way that ruminating brain tend to manifest in seeking information is, like I said, going into the future, trying to analyze every possible thing that might go wrong before I do anything to where this decision tree, you know, I, I better ponder this. It's got 10,000 branches on it, but I better ponder it again. And usually anticipating things are going to go wrong. Um, you know, I had a girlfriend a few years back and her brother used to call her Chicken Little because the sky was always falling. When I was in a relationship with her, I said, well, let's go do this. Let's go take this trip or let's do that. Well, what if, what if this, what if that? I mean, always was what if. And I go, I don't know. I don't live on the planet of what ifs. Let's just go do it. And when we get there, we'll figure it out. You know, whatever happens, we've figured everything else out. We'll figure this out too. But she had to spin about all of that. So futurizing can be another powerful way. Uh, another one, as I said, is doing this kind of, kind of more outward a comparison either to yours by, by, hey, I'm 30, I should be married and happy by now. I'm 40, I should be a millionaire by now. But I'm 50, I should be retired living in Costa Rica by now. You know, whatever these standards are, or, you know, I, you know since we've already mentioned Microsoft, I, I, I will give the illustration that I graduated in the same city in the same year from high school as a, a, a future Harvard dropout who went on to become the richest guy in the world. Uh, Bill Gates and I are the same age. We graduated in from in Seattle, different high schools, same year. And, you know, he went on to become world's richest guy. And, you know, I'm, I'm not anywhere near <laughs> the world's richest guy. And, but if I, what if I compared myself to Bill Gates? You know, I, I'd be miserable constantly. Um, at least I don't wear sweaters all the time. So, you know, I, I, I'll give myself <laughs> that. So we, our brain will, will go find these things that, that, that just make us feel miserable. And that there tends to be three effects I've found on people that, that you know, have, have a, a certifiable ruminating brain. One is they tend to feel bad, and usually bad about themselves. I'm inherently flawed or broken. They tend to, to isolate, because if, if you're constantly looking at all your perceived flaws and mistakes, you're not going to go risk and be close to other people, because they're going to find out how flawed and broken you are. And it tends to keep you stuck. What kind of risk are you going to take moving into future ventures, especially the ones that scare you or have some unknown quality to them, which almost every future venture does have an unknown quality to it. Um, you're not going to take those risks. You're going to keep playing it safe over and over again and, and not live up to your potential. So this is typically how that ruminating brain manifests. And one other thing I'm going to throw out that I found out after I started teaching courses on ruminating brain is that, as I said, the ruminating brain convinces us is always seeking important information to get all the pieces to fit together and then life will be right life will be good i found that people with ruminating brain tend to take a lot of self-help courses read a lot of self-help books listen to a lot of self-help podcasts watch a lot of youtube videos go to a lot of talk
Tony Robbins, you know, go to Landmark, you know, get, have coaches. And, and I, cause I've had so many say, I've got every self-help book, self-help book ever written, or I'm a seminar guru, you know, junkie. And what, what happens if you go, if you've read, you know, every self-help book, you know, you've read your Napoleon Hill, you've read your this, you've read your that, you've been to these workshops, you've done Tony Robbins 18 times, you've done Landmark Advance, blah, blah, and all of that. And you still feel bad inside. You still have that existential, uh uh-huh that doesn't feel good, it actually makes you feel worse that you've, you've read every self-help book, done every Tony Robbins seminar, you know, listen, listen to the every, you know, podcast on success at work and you still feel uh inside, you know, what's wrong with me? Everybody else does Tony Robbins and they're successful. You know, everybody else does Napoleon Hill and they think themselves to richness. What's wrong with me? Cause that uh doesn't go away inside. And, and so I often have to tell people, ruminating brain, no more seminars, no mm. more self-help books. Finish my course and then just, you have enough information to do whatever it is you need to do. Getting more information is probably just going to make you feel worse because you keep thinking more information is going to make everything click and then you'll feel good. No, you feel bad because you have a ruminating brain and you believe what your brain keeps telling you. That's why you feel bad. Man, uh, I'm glad I asked you about the ruminating brain. <laughs> yeah. Is your head spinning kind of like that? Oh, yeah, man, that was, I didn't see is, all that coming. It is spinning. It's, it's, uh, I love how you distilled that, though. Um, so yeah, the seminar, the seminar junkie, the self-help book junkie. junkie. Um, I had, a, you know, I did that on business books, like reading the, you know, good to great and whatever else was out there. And it's, uh, man, I wish reading books made people better. <laughs> you know, and I write books, you know, and I, I, I believe I read books, but yes, thinking hey, that next book, you know, that was just one more Navy SEAL book and that will make everything, you know, fit together. <laughs> it doesn't, you may get, I mean, I, I get something of value. I, I'm, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm on a Jack Kerouac kick right now. I've just been on it for about a week or two. And it's kind of like, oh, I want to read a bunch of Jack Kerouac books. Um, and I get something out of them. But, you know, it's, it's not going to change my life. Um, I may get something of value and I may enjoy them. Um, but, you know, read for the pleasure of it. But, yeah, we probably, everybody listening to this podcast probably already has enough information, you know, under their belt, in their head, to do what they need to do to move forward. Probably it's already there. Well, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, it, and it was there before they got here. I would imagine. I think yeah, there's a there's yeah. there's a lot of a lot of wisdom. Well, no, actually, and a lot this of this, po- this podcast yeah. actually took them over the top. They, yeah, they that's need, right. That's right. Say, they, they don't need to listen to anymore. They they've now got all that they need. After you've especially, got this especially podcast. now that they now that they've understood the ruminating brain, they'll go, oh fuck, that explains it all. Of course, my life is my life is forever solved. Um, is there? Is it, I guess in, in your experience, is it, has it been the case that um, people that you talk to that have ruminating brain, do they, do they tend to be highly correlated with having Mr. Nice Guy syndrome too? Or are these two things totally separate? Not, not necessarily, not necessarily. Um, I, I think every, I know all three of my wives have had ruminating brains. Um, my father had a ruminating brain. Um, he wasn't a nice guy. Um, I, I think a, many room, many nice guys do have ruminating brains, but again, I think the ruminating brain can push us out to one of those two extremes because it keeps us in an anxiety state. You know, we either go to that nice guy extreme or that asshole jerk extreme. Uh, so we're either freezing and fleeing because of our ruminating brain, or we're fighting a lot because of our ruminating brain. Um, so no, I, I don't think it's exclusively a nice guy thing. And it's not exclusively a guy thing. I, I have a hunch that, that maybe women experience it more than, than men because just throughout all of human history, women have been more vulnerable than men. And, and so, um, like I said, every, every significant female relationship I've had, um, the, the women have had ruminating brains, um, just constantly spinning. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, uh, it, there, I think there are, there are a lot of things out there like that that we have thought are traditionally you know, for one gender or the other. And obviously, as we, we enter into the conversations about post-gender, or whatever else, these, these conversations get ramped up. But one of the things I really want to ask you about is related to that, actually. So 
there was um, there's been lots written, um, some a bit a bit famously, you know, the, this highlight idea of imposter syndrome. And this shows up in the workplace all the time. Like I'm not good enough to do that job. And we have research that says that, you know, women wait till they have five out of five qualifications before they apply for a job and men wait mm -hmm. till they have two. So all this, right. But the idea behind it is imposter syndrome of like, well, they're going to find out. I have no idea what I'm doing. And uh, I'm, it's been my experience that, that men experience that exact same syndrome. They're just less likely to act according to it, but they experience the same voice. And I'm curious yeah. since you, since you're, you know, you're trained uh, psychologist, like what is, is that, have you found something similar? Yes. I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it because it crossed my mind earlier in our conversation. Yeah. Here's what I tell people, you know, as a therapist over 30 years, um, I've worked with people from all walks of life and, and, you know, a lot of them pretty high up, um, uh, vice presidents of major corporations, um, doctors, many very successful people. And without exception, unless the person is a narcissist, unless they are, uh, you know, now they, we, we use that term for just about, yeah, everybody. we do. <laughs> um, but I mean, unless they're really, you know, a, a true textbook narcissist, Everybody, when they get out of their comfort zone, everybody, when they get into something new that, that, that they haven't been doing for the last 10 years and it hasn't become rote, if you get into something new, you are going to have that fear of being found out. You, you are going to have that, that, that imposter syndrome, that fear that I don't know what I'm doing, because the truth is you don't. You don't know what you're doing like you did before you got that promotion or the advancement. The reason you got the promotion and advancement is because you got so good at what you were doing, it, it was like you could do it in your sleep. But when you started that job, it, it was the same way. You, you didn't know what you were doing. So any advancement, any new company you start, any new change of direction, anything where you don't you're, where you're not already the world's leading expert on it, you are going to have a fear of being found out and you are going to feel like an imposter because the truth is you don't know everything. There's still a lot that you don't know. There's still a lot that you can't do. You don't even know yet what you don't know that you can't do, right? So that's normal. And, that, and that's what I, I try to help people understand that anytime you venture into this new area is normal to, to feel like an imposter is normal to feel like you're going to get found out. And as you say, what, what a lot of people do, instead of, you know, just being vulnerable about that, they hunker down and they try to figure everything out on their own. So this is one of the things that where, where people get stuck in middle management, they, they do way too much work that's unnecessary, right? Instead of getting in this new position and asking their new boss who they want to make a good impression on their new boss, instead of saying, I don't know how to do this, or can you point me in the direction of where I can get the, you know, the, the tools or, or the, the schematic or the information or the down, what, can you tell me where to go look for this? And when I get stuck, can you get me unstuck quickly rather than me spending the next three days trying to get unstuck when it, it'd take you three minutes to get me unstuck B because we hide it because we don't want to be found out, it, 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 it creates tremendous anxiety. It blocks productivity. It blocks learning. Now, yeah, there is something to be said by kind of learning something through trial and error, but there's also something to be said by not wasting so much time trying to figure it out yourself and just asking somebody who already knows how to do it. Hopefully your boss does. Right? Otherwise, you hope so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, hopefully they do. Otherwise, they're going to be found out that they don't know. <laughs> So if we can just acknowledge, and it goes back to me giving that advice to that client of mine at, at a meeting of, of Microsoft VPs, tell the VPs at least twice. It was a, it was a homework assignment. I don't know. I'll find out. Because he had that fear of being found out. What if I don't know everything every vice president needs to know? Well, he's not going to. There's no way he, he could know everything that every vice president might want to know about something, but he could find out. And saying, I'll find out, or saying, I don't know, can you help me? Can you point me in the right direction? Can you assist me? That's how we overcome this imposter syndrome, is just accept that it's normal, and we're normal, and accept that we're not going to know everything. Don't hide it. Be open. Be vulnerable. Ask for help. I don't, you know, 
only the really worst bosses get irritated if their employees ask for help. I think most bosses want their employees to ask for help so that they stay more productive. Bad boss, some bad bosses don't, but if you have that kind of boss, go find a different one. Yeah. If, if you have the courage to do it, um, <laughs> if you're you might not have the courage to do it. So, <laughs> um, I love that, man. You know, I think that's, um, that's a good spot to tie the knot here. Um, I, I love, I love where this conversation went today. It's, it's beautiful. I had, you know, some stuff planned, but my, my best plans, you know, generally end up in a beautiful podcast that doesn't go there. So just, I know it's, you're pretty easy to find online, but just for people that are listening and wanting to find you right away, where's the best place to, to go find out more about you and your work, Robert? That would be my website. Just uh, drglover.com. It's just D-R-G-L-O-V-E-R.com. Uh, if they Google Robert Glover or No More Mr. Nice Guy, I think I got about the ten, top 10 spots on each of those. I, I even beat out Alice Cooper on the Google search for No More Mr. Nice Guy. So. And he's pretty spiritually woke. So that's pretty impressive, man. I like that. <laughs> that's a, that's um, impressive. Yeah. So, okay, great. I mean, I'll, I'll link everything up in show notes. But as you know, most people never look at the show notes. They listen once and they need to get the idea. So, um, uh, and I'll make sure they have all the information about your books and your courses so uh, thanks for being on Men at Work and, and uh, for allowing me to take you on the meandering walk through the work of Dr. Robert Glover. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been a beautiful hour to spend with you. Travis, thank you. Thanks for the invitation. And I can't, I can't, I'm looking forward to when you and I get to actually be face-to-face, looking at each other's left eye, breathing <laughs> together, grounding ourselves. I'm, I can't wait. It, it won't be long, man, I, I hope. It'll be soon. All right, we'll see you then. I'm sure at this point you have found the nice guy in yourself. Uh, that's Robert Glover. He's amazing. I love that interview so much. He's such a positive person to have on the show, despite some of the heaviness of his work. And if you ever get a chance to meet Robert in person, uh, his persona is even larger than what you got a taste of on the podcast. Leave it at that. If you enjoyed the show, please leave me a rating or review on whatever platform you are using to listen to this podcast. And if you are a nice guy and need support, please pick up Robert's book, visit his website, attend one of his workshops, or work with one of his certified trainers one-on-one. It will be worth every second, every penny that you spend. That's it for now. See you on... Season 3, Episode 8.